Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the misguided Queen Bee? Here we are. Enjoy! The telegraph received in Nelson, New Zealand was a matter-of-fact request for immediate aid. Quote, the ship Queen Bee struck on Farewell Spit last night and had ten feet of water in her hold when we left. Send assistance immediately. End quote. Help was indeed immediately sent in the form of two steamers, the Littelton and the Lady Berkeley, both left Nelson as quickly as possible while everyone else waited with bated breath for more news. While the rescue ships began their search, more telegraphs reached Nelson. Quote, Queen Bee from London struck on farewell spit at midnight Monday. A boat in the charge of the second mate at Motika and telegraphed to the agent for assistance. As far as is known yet, no lives were lost. End quote. Newspapers started to telegraph inquiries back to Motika, which gained further details in the form of another telegram. Quote, Passengers still on board when the boat left, it being too dark to find a landing place, there appears to be no chance of saving the vessel, her back being broken, and she is bumping heavily. End quote. This was still not enough information for a public who knew that there were a lot of passengers on board. The Queen Bee had been one of the first ships to bring immigrants to New Zealand, and some of the people coming from London on the Queen Bee were already residents of New Zealand who had been to England on a visit. People waiting for news wanted to know exactly what happened. The newspaper The Colonist was able to get a full account from the second mate from Motika after contacting their reporter there. The ship had struck around midnight while it had been his watch, so he had been able to give very particular detail about how it had happened. He had been the only officer, and on seeing breakers up ahead and hearing the roar of the surf, he had gone to check the compass. He had not even reached the compass, however, when the ship had jolted to a stop. The waves were choppy, and the ship was in a bad placement, which meant that it wasn't until about 4 a.m. that the second mate and five other members of the crew had managed to get their small boat launched to go in search of help. They first found a fisherman's house, who came with them as a guide and directed them to Rewaka. Once in Rewaka, they had been able to travel by foot to Motika, where they had arrived at seven that night. Motika was important for having a telegraph operator, and they had immediately been able to telegraph the agents of the company in Nelson, who had been the ones to send out boats for help. The second mate was able to add that he very much doubted that the wreck would have any people on it still. As the person who knew best where the wreck was, the second mate and his crew set off to return to the ship on being assured that help would soon be on the way. In case there were still people on the ship, they wanted to assure them that there was going to be a rescue. Even if he had stayed on land, there was not a lot of further information that the second mate could have offered. He had left very shortly after the ship had grounded on the sandbar, 
and therefore had no knowledge of what had transpired as the evacuation of the Queen Bee had begun. Almost as soon as the ship had grounded, Captain Davis had sent the second mate for help, but that did not help with the immediate problem of the crew and passengers who remained. Every time the ship bumped against the rock, people were knocked from their feet, and waves washed over the wreck, making them sure that the wreck was in danger of breaking apart. It was clear that they were not going to be able to remain on board of her until help arrived from Nelson. Their first attempt to find help was to fire the ship's rockets and signal guns, but all of these efforts proved in vain, and there was no answer from the shore. Finally, they turned to the ship's remaining boats. The rough water and the bumping of the ship did not make launching any of the boats an easy task, however, and there were not enough boats to hold everyone on board. Captain Davis ordered the building of a raft, but in the meantime, the ship's cutter was launched. As it was launched, Captain Davis asked that the passengers hold back rather than overloading the small craft, but with many of the passengers sure that the ship was about to break apart, the boat was quickly on its way well over capacity. The lifeboat was launched quickly after it, equally loaded down with anxious passengers, and the two boats departed together. Shortly after, the captain, crew, and the remaining passengers were able to launch the raft they had managed to cobble together with the ship's remaining small boat tied behind it. The overloaded ship's lifeboat was mainly full of families and children, with only three crew members to man it, as well as a stowaway. When launched, it had been damaged, and between that and the heavy load, the women on board were forced to bail it the entire time they were in it, while the men rowed. The lifeboat and the cutter kept company until the lifeboat found a way to rig a sail with a couple of blankets, and soon they were separated, leaving behind the cutter, which only had three oars, none of which were in very good condition. The cutter thus left completely to its own devices, and with 21 passengers and only four sailors on board, wallowed in the rough sea. Three times, the boat filled, and they were only able to manage when the wind shifted enough that they were able to tie a rug to a brass pole to use as a sail. This finally allowed them to drift into Puna Harbor the next day, where they landed and began to boil water to drink. Between all of them, for over 24 hours, they had only had a single bottle of water that a passenger had happened to take and a couple of tins of meat. When the other people evacuating the ship had tried to bring supplies, the captain had prevented it, saying that they would only be at sea for a couple of hours and it was not necessary. The people from the cutter, finally being able to address their thirst after a trying day and a half, the crew members took it upon themselves to scout out where they were and look for help. Here, they found a Maori settlement where the whole of the survivors from the cutter were able to shelter and finally enjoy food until the following day when they were rowed to a nearby house. Here, they found the small naval brigade boat Aurora. Some of them were able to take the Aurora, while the remaining survivors remained on one of the Maori boats, and they were finally able to reach Nelson. They proved to be some of the last survivors to land, and indeed, 
there had been a lot of concern that they had all drowned before news had come of their rescue. The first people to reach Nelson from the Queen Bee had been the survivors who had been in the lifeboat. The crew who had been placed on the lifeboat had been the same members of the crew who had been on watch when the ship had struck the sandbank, and therefore they were the most exhausted. After six hours of being on the oars to keep company with the cutter, the sailors declared that they were exhausted and that they could no longer row. It was only then that a sailor known as Ned stepped forward and rigged the sail. Ned continued his charge of the boat not allowing himself to rest even when the others did, and keeping a watch for land. When land was spotted, he took down the sail, it being too dangerous to sail that close to land, and instead he rowed by himself, the other sailors still being completely exhausted. That night, they saw the lights of a steamer, believed to be the Kennedy, and they tried to alert them to their presence, but the steamer failed to spot them. Ned tried to convince the sailors to help him row for the steamer, but none of the other sailors felt that they would be able to catch the steamer in their exhausted states. Ned finally needed to rest as well, and so the women kept watch while he finally allowed himself to sleep. The next morning, they saw the steamer again, and this time tried waving a blanket, but again, no one saw them. It was under their own power that the lifeboat was finally able to pull into Awaroa in the hopes of finding some help. It had been 36 hours of sitting in a cramped boat with water repeatedly washing over their feet. All of them were hardly able to walk as they made their way to the house they could see near the shore. They were to be disappointed. This was unfortunately the house of the very fisherman that had helped the second mate reach Motika and they had not returned. The people of the lifeboat were starving, however, and were not able to resist the provisions that they had found in the house, especially potatoes that they ate raw, ignoring the fisherman's absence. Luckily, they were not forced to return to their lifeboat to continue their voyage. Every ship in the area had heard of the fate of the Queen Bee and was looking for survivors. They were picked up in Awaroa by the schooner Merlin, which then ran into the Lady Barclay, onto which they transferred. Also on board the Lady Barclay was the second mate and his party. They had run into the Lady Barclay as soon as they were headed to the wreck. The Lady Barclay had just come from looking at the wreck and done a complete survey, finding no passengers but a ship that was a total loss. Cargo was washing out of the hold and it was clear that the ship was completely broken, never to sail again. He also made a rather grim note, though. The ship had only been 180 meters from rounding the spit. The fault was in navigation. There would be a lot of questions for the captain and his crew about their fault in their navigation. But first, they would have to find Captain Davis. Captain Davis had been one of the last people on the Queen Bee, as was tradition, and he and the remaining crew members, as well as two remaining passengers, had been on the raft and in the small boat that had served as his captain's gig. It had been made clear fairly quickly 
that the raft was not a success. The men who had been placed on it were quickly up to their armpits in water and begged the captain to be allowed in the gig. He was forced to relent, making his boat as overloaded as the others that had been launched. Captain Davis had hoped to make it to Greville Harbor, but that was not possible with his boat about to sink due to the weight in it. They came to Duvril's Island, where they were forced to beach their boat despite the rough conditions and the inhospitable coastline. It was either that or sink. In the attempt, the boat flipped on its end, leading to the only death of the wreck. The ship's carpenter never reached the shore. Another man, one of the passengers, had both of his feet crushed by the careening boat and was severely injured. Their condition was not greatly improved by being on land, and they no longer had a boat with which to escape since it had been smashed to pieces on the landing. The captain must have surely regretted his choice to not bring any supplies, since the spit of land they now found themselves on had no immediately visible sources of food or water, and was only a few yards wide. On all sides, other than the side of the ocean, were steep cliffs that walled them off from the rest of the island. They did eventually find water, but they found no food, and there they were forced to remain for three days. It was only on the third day that one of them was able to start a fire, and out of desperation they set fire to the bushes that were on the spit of land in the hope of attracting attention. They were in luck. The steamer Manawatu had been sent to look for survivors, and when they saw the fire, they were able to pull the men to safety. This was not the end of the rescue, however. While waiting for rescue, two of the men, one the ship's cook, and the other the ship's mate, had managed to scale the cliffs in search of food and help. Neither had returned by the time that the Manawatu arrived, and the Manawatu was not able to remain so close to the rocky shore of the Irvilles Island due to worsening weather conditions. The two men would have to wait a little longer for a rescue. The yacht Lightning, owned by a Mr. Taylor, was the last into the fray. The yacht was only just built and not even complete or fitted out when Mr. Taylor decided he wanted to join in the rescue and search efforts. With a volunteer crew, a false keel, a temporary mast and rigging, and a rudder that had only been made at 10 o'clock the night before, Mr. Taylor set out. D'Urville's Island was known to be one of the last places that still had not been completely searched and so the lightning headed directly where she was most needed. On the way, they met the Manawatu returning after the rescue of the captain and crew, and heard about the two men left on the island. This gave the yacht a purpose, and so they remained near D'Urville's island, able to see the fire lit by the two remaining men, even though they could not draw near the island due to the poor weather. The next day, they saw the Lothelton stop and turn near where they knew the survivors had been, and assuming that they had effected a rescue, the yacht carried on to search for the cutter, news of their safety not having reached the rescue ships yet. While they were still searching, they met with the Lothelton, who told them that they had only found one of the remaining survivors. It was the cook, who they had heard very faintly cooing from a nook in the rocky cliffs. 
He admitted that he had lain down to die when he had seen them, and renewed some hope of a rescue. The cook's emancipated state made the rescuers even more determined that the remaining survivor needed to be found quickly. The crew of the yacht, the Safo, and the Latelton all anchored close to the shore of the island, and they spread out in search of the missing man. Finally, he was found, despite the thick brush on the island that frequently had to be crawled or cut through. With the final remaining man of the crew safely landed in Nelson, the attention of the public could turn to other things. The first thing that became apparent was that the survivors of the Queen Bee had lost everything. Quickly, donations were taken up to supply them with their basic needs, and they were housed until they could make other arrangements. A public holiday was declared to recognize the men who had gone to great personal expense and effort to participate in the rescue, including a parade. There was a hint of scandal in the air, however. Agents for the insurance office that insured the Queen Bee had a dark cloud of suspicion over their heads. Before most of the survivors had even been rescued, the men had ordered an auction of the wreck and had completely disposed of the wreckage without consulting anyone or even really assessing the full state of things. At the block, salvage rights for the ship and her cargo had gone for only 740 pounds, which caused many eyebrows to raise. The shipping agents in Nelson, who had initially received the telegraph telling of the wreck in the first place, protested the sale, though they were ignored. They argued that the Queen Bee was not abandoned. Indeed, their company had not even been given a chance to decide what to do with her. Her cargo alone had been valued at £25,300, and while some of this cargo might still be gone or spoiled, they would certainly have liked to see a greater return than £750 for it. Not only that, but the buyers of the wreck was a company that had been formed only for that purpose. Even more questionable, the Queen Bee had not even been insured, so there had been even less reason for the insurance agents to interfere. For the next few weeks, the public called for someone to look into the matter of the sale including people writing into the newspapers, but nothing came of that either. The matter was soon complicated when the wreck soon broke apart, allowing the cargo to float off in all directions. The company was forced to issue an official statement warning everyone that keeping items from the wreck was the same as theft since they owned the salvage rights and asking that anything that was found be turned over. The recovery company did not give up, however, and they soon had enough to sell shares and pay dividends with what they did manage to salvage. The insurance agents were not the only ones called into question. As with all wrecks, there was a board of inquiry, and this one did not look kindly on the officers of the Queen Bee. The captain and officers argued in their defense that their compass had been off by a few points the entire voyage, but this did not spare them the ire of the board. The board found that a better lookout should have been maintained, that they should have checked their course when they had seen the spitlight a little while before, and that soundings should have been taken. Captain Davis had his certificate revoked for three years for these shortcomings 
while the second mate, whose watch it had been, had his certificate revoked for six months. The board considered the judgment of the first mate just as bad. He had been on deck when the spitlight had come in sight, but they were not able to hold him responsible because he had not been in command or in charge of the watch. It did not spare him their scorn. Their lack of care in guiding the ship in a careful way had cost one man his life, endangered many more, and lost the Queen Bee forever. For more information, see the Colonist newspaper's full account of the wreck of the Basque Queen Bee from the 23rd of August, 1877, or our other sources below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.